All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It is really good to be back together again. It's especially good because today we're going to bring our study of the book of Mark, uh, which we've been doing now for almost 13 months or so. We're going to bring it to a close as we uh, finally come to the end uh, of Mark's gospel. should be good. Uh, so let's open up our time with a word of prayer. Uh, please uh, bow your heads with me. Father, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to us uh, during this last year. As we, uh, we dug into the Word of God, Lord, you tell us in your Word that all Scripture is, is God-breathed, that it's useful uh, for correcting us, training us, teaching us uh, in righteousness, rebuking us where need be. And, and Father, we want to thank you for the way in which you have used uh, the Word of God to do that, and particularly the, the book of Mark. And so, Lord, just once more, we pray that you would uh, once more speak to us through your Word, through the book of Mark. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as uh, you can put the pieces of the puzzle together, we're in the last chapter. Uh, so Mark chapter 16, you can begin turning there, please, in your Bible. And as you do it, let me just remind you, Mark, his gospel's unique. It's the shortest of the four gospels. And one of the reasons why it is so short is because Mark's gospel is characterized by brevity. Mark, Mark sort of gives us the main information you need to make the point that he is trying to make. And Many times the details that we learn about certain people or certain events, we actually learn those from some of the other gospel writers. And so Mark does that once more here with this final chapter as well, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, the various appearances that he made to uh, different folks um, during that interval of time until he was finally ascended up into heaven. Uh, Mark just gives us a few uh, instances of that. You may recall, um, if you were with us, he begins the chapter by telling us that early on Sunday morning, as soon as Sabbath was over, the sun came up again the next morning, uh, that some ladies came to prepare Jesus's body for a proper burial. Uh, and as they got there, they had been wondering, you know, what are we going to do with that stone? And they discovered the stone had already been rolled away. Mark then points out to us that those ladies left there and they immediately went to tell the disciples what the angel had told them. As we'll see, Mark will then go on and he'll mention an instance where Jesus appeared and interacted with Mary Magdalene. And then he interacted with a couple of disciples on a road outside of Jerusalem until, as Mark points out, he finally, Jesus that is, appears to the eleven. He commissions those eleven and then he ascends into heaven. Just sort of very quick information <coughs> from Mark we learn three, four interactions with uh, an individual or a group of people. But as you read the rest of the Gospels and you begin to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you see Jesus appeared to many different people, that there were many appearances uh, that Jesus made uh, after having been resurrected from the dead uh, until his ascension, which we learn was 40 days later. And so as we make our way through the other Gospels, we, we learn that Jesus appeared to the two Marys that made their way to the tomb that early morning. They encountered an angel. They went and ran to tell the disciples. They then came back to the tomb. And then that is when Mary Magdalene will individually have her encounter with Jesus, which we'll look at uh, today. That's the account you may recall where Mary mistook Jesus for the gardener and said, you know, sir, if you've laid his body somewhere else, let me know, whatever. So Mark just gives us sort of the basic information there. There's a lot more that is going on here. It's in the other Gospels that we discover the full story 
of Jesus's interaction with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We read about that in Luke chapter 24. It's in the other Gospels that we learn that Jesus appeared and that he met with the 11, the apostles, that even ate with those apostles on multiple occasions. Uh, and we read about those in John chapter 20. Uh, one time without Thomas present and another time with Thomas present. Uh, we learn that there was at least one additional time where Jesus met with seven of his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, where fishing was involved and eating that fish was involved. And it was at that instance that Jesus restored Peter, who had denied him, whereas Jesus sat alongside of him and restored him to the faith and to relationship and so on. We learn about that in John 21. Again, we learn about a lot of other appearances from the other Gospels that Mark doesn't pre pre uh, present to us. And that's, again, not unusual because Mark was rather brief in uh, his writing and in the gospel that he shared with us. For whatever reason, he left out a whole bunch of those other events. One interesting fact is all four gospel writers left out something that Paul made us aware of in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul tells us that in one instance, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Uh, and then he will go on to say, and many of those guys are still alive. You can go ask them. Uh, about it. And for whatever reason, all four gospel writers don't tell us about that particular interaction, but Paul does in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, here's the point that I am trying to make. The point is this. Jesus didn't appear to just a few people over here in some corner so, and then kind of leave it at that so humanity can either take it or leave it as to whether or not we're going to trust those few people that had the opportunity to meet with the Lord uh, post-resurrection. Jesus actually appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people who Paul, again, said, most of whom are still alive, that is, at the time of Paul's writing, that you can go and you can talk to them. You can ask them about what was it like, how did they appear, and so on and so forth. Mark, though, chooses to focus on just a few of those folks. As we saw last week, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we're going to see that later on today, and then the 11 apostles. These are the ones that Mark uses as sort of a represent, representation of Jesus' appearances, his multiple appearances throughout. And so with that introduction, let me reread what we looked at last week. So we'll start with chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back, and it was very large. And so entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they were afraid to, and said nothing to anyone, uh, again, because they were afraid. Now we looked at that 
account there in our last study, the opening account of these ladies coming to, tomb, to the tomb to prepare the body of the Lord. And instead of finding the tomb sealed up with a stone and instead of finding the body of the Lord inside of that tomb, they instead encounter an angel. And that angel gives them both a message and a commission. He gives them a message. The message was that he's not here but rather that he was risen and going before them to Galilee. We see that there in verse 6 and verse 7 of our chapter. That's the message. Now, the commission was that they were to go and to tell. First, the disciples, and then also included there is Peter. So the message, he has risen, and he's going to go before you to Galilee. The commission, go tell the disciples this. Go tell Peter this. These women were the first heralds of the resurrection the first to be publicly proclaimed that to other people, to be made aware of it and to tell others of Jesus' resurrection. God would use the testimony of three women who at that time in human history would not have been allowed to testify in an open court. And yet God chose them to be the first to discover and then the first to testify of the resurrection of Jesus. Now that, that's significant. For a, perhaps for a variety of different reasons, but one reason in particular, because it, that decision of God to entrust this message to these three ladies whose testimony would not have been accepted in a court, it speaks to the veracity of the count, account that is before us. Because if Mark were making this up, he would not have selected someone whose testimony would have been dismissed and ignored. Rather, if Mark was making this up, he would have selected someone that his audience would have been uh, inclined to believe. Someone like Joseph of Arimathea, for instance, or perhaps Nicodemus, or maybe one of the disciples, the apostles. In fact, Luke's gospel points out that when these women went and told the eleven, they went and told the apostles, the disciples, that Jesus had risen and that what the angel had said, it tells us that the response of those disciples was that their message seemed to them an idle tale, and it says, and they did not believe them. And so again, the fact that three women were selected to be the first heralds of the resurrection, it speaks to us of the authenticity of the text that is before us. That should encourage you. Now, we look at the angels' commissioning. What was it? Well, the commissioning was for them, the women, to go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you. You might think of that message that they were sent with as really an invitation. Jesus was inviting those apostles and other disciples to meet with him in Galilee. And these women were to tell them that. Now think of that. This is the same set of disciples whom three days earlier had completely failed the Lord. And with the exception of John uh, John, the apostle, had completely abandoned the Lord in his time of need. I think if Jesus had cast off those 11 and said, you know, when I really needed you, you weren't there, so I'm done with you. I'm going to find some new folks. I think we might all say, well, that makes sense. I get it. I can see why he would do that. But truth be told, even though Jesus had every right to dismiss his disciples, rather in grace, he extends an invitation to his disciples. And specifically, you'll notice he extends an invitation to Peter. It says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Notice that Peter was invited too. 
Of course, you remember Peter was the one who had denied the Lord on three different occasions. Not one time, not twice, but on three different occasions he denied knowing the Lord when presented with the opportunity to identify himself with the Lord. On three different occasions, he denied, the way it could be worded in the original is, he denied even knowing that man. You know, there's something uh, derisive in calling Jesus that man. I don't know that man. And he did that on three different occasions here. And yet we have, go tell the disciples and Peter. The, the addition of those two little words, and Peter, that was a special, a special message to Peter meant to assure Peter that the Lord actually wanted him to be there. It was an assurance that Jesus still loved Peter. And he, considered, he continued to consider him as one of his own. You can, you can sort of amplify those words a little bit to get the point of what is being said. And you can amplify it like this. Um, go tell the disciples and, and make sure you let Peter know that I hope he'll be there as well. You know, that was the invitation that Jesus was extending to the disciples, but in particular to Peter. He wanted Peter to be there. And how that message must have cheered Peter's heart when he received it. We know following his denial of the Lord, he, uh, the rooster crows, he locks eyes with the Lord. And the, the scripture tells us that he, he ran outside of sort of this little courtyard area. He ran outside and he began to weep bitterly. Peter was broken over his sin. And we see here the Lord was prepared to forgive Peter for that sin and ultimately to begin to restore Peter to the place of relationship, to restore Peter from that sin. The angel says, go, tell his disciples and Peter. Years after this, Paul the Apostle would write in the book of 2 Timothy, he would say, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And the reason, because he cannot deny himself. That's his character. And dealing with our faithlessness and the sin that comes from it, that's the whole point of the cross of Jesus Christ. The whole point of the cross of Jesus Christ is to deal with our sin problem, our faithlessness and the sin that comes from it. Peter was, faith, Peter was faithless, but the Lord remained faithful. Jesus, the risen Redeemer, Redeemer is the idea of the one that pays the ransom. Jesus, the risen Redeemer, he did not disown Peter, but rather he continued to love him and he desired to see him and to have the relationship restored once more. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you have likely found yourself in a spot like the one Peter had found himself. And what I mean by that is you have let the Lord down. Maybe you've even let your, yourself down of the standards you have for what it means to be a Christian, but ultimately you have let the Lord down and you failed and you've sinned in some way against the Lord in a significant way. The temptation many times then is to run off to beat ourselves up over our sin, or in some cases, like Judas did, ultimately to destroy himself over his sin. But Jesus says, come. He says, come, let's sit, let's talk for a while, because he wants to restore us. Jesus desires that restoration, and he's made a way for that restoration to occur. Sometimes, however, I find we, let, we fail to let the restoration happen. Sometimes we convince ourselves that Jesus really wouldn't want to meet with me, not after I did what I just did. Or maybe we begin to tell ourselves that what we had done was so wrong that it would be wrong for us to come back 
to the Lord and seek forgiveness from him. Or maybe we deduce that we need to first beat ourselves up, that we kind of need to complete sort of this period of penance first to prove to the Lord just how sorry we actually are, and then he'll receive us back. But that's not what we see in the scripture. Jesus says, come. He says, come, let's sit together. Let's talk. As believers, we have to believe the truth of the Apostle John's words that he wrote for us in the first epistle. John the Apostle, it's a familiar verse. A lot of us know it. 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just, and he will forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The truth of that verse has to move from a head knowledge that acknowledges what it says. I know that's what the Bible says. And it has to move from our head down to our heart that begins to practice what it says. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and he'll forgive us and he'll cleanse us. I'm reminded in the Old Testament of King David. King David, you know, many of us know, sinned against the Lord uh, and he did so by taking another man's wife, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And we learn from our study of the Old Testament that David kept that sin hidden for nearly a year. Nearly a year he kept that sin hidden, essentially, or tried to, from the Lord. And for nearly a year, rather than deal with the conviction that God was laying upon him, David continued to put aside the conviction. He tried to squash the conviction like a lot of us do, in hopes that it would maybe just go away, wake up the next morning and you wouldn't think about it any longer. But the reality is it doesn't go away and it didn't go away for David. David, in another place, he would explain this. He says in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, talking about God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, as you continue reading, finally the Lord broke through to David, and David returned to the Lord. He confessed his sin, and that prompted him to go on in that same psalm to say, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will cover my, excuse me, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Back to Peter, those few days between Peter's denial of the Lord and the resurrection of the Lord were a time where Peter must have felt that, like David, his bones were wasting away. His strength was being dried up as by the heat of summer. And Jesus, notice he invites him to come. Make sure Peter's there so that he can sit with him and ultimately Peter would be restored. Sometimes, I like to take a short little phrase that we find in the Bible and use that as sort of a, a memory device for maybe an entire passage or a sermon on a particular topic that I had heard. Just a couple words that sort of, it, it jogs my thinking. It reminds me of something I've learned by reading a full passage. And here's one of those instances, the two words, and Peter. I think they're two words that all of us would do very well to remember and to tell ourselves the next time we stumble, the next time we begin to think that God doesn't want to welcome me back or I need to, to punish myself long enough before I ever try to come back to the Lord, two words that we can remember is, and Peter. Again, we read here, go tell the disciples 
and Peter. Now, verse 8, as we see, that's what the ladies go and do. It says, they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, if verse 8 could be kind of confusing because it, it sort of seems to imply they disobeyed the angel. The angel said, go and tell the disciples and Peter, but they left and didn't tell anyone. That's not what's being communicated. It's not what Mark is trying to communicate. The idea is that they went out and they went right to the disciples with the message. They didn't stop. They didn't tell anybody else along the way. And the reason we know that, and I'm not just making something up here, the reason we know that is because the other Gospels tell us that. Remember, Mark is marked by brevity. And so the other Gospels, Luke 24 says, they remembered the angel's words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest, the other disciples that were there as well. And so these women, they obey the angel, they leave, they go, they tell the 11. Additionally, we see in verse 8, it tells us as they leave uh, that they were afraid. Mark says they were afraid. Now the word is a word typically used to describe not just fear in the sense of you know, being fearful, uh, but it's a word that's typically used to describe ecstasy or sensory overload. You might have been in a situation like that with sensory overload. It's a word in the Bible which is used for a person that finds themselves experiencing sort of a combination of confusion and bewilderment, trying to figure it out, and fear and excitement. And it's sort of all of those emotions and feelings jumbled up together. That's what Mark is saying these women were experiencing as they left the tomb to go and tell the disciples what they had just witnessed. Again, about the resurrection. And I have to wonder if the resurrection continues to impact us as followers of Christ in that particular way. It, it very well may continue to do so. I hope it does. But sometimes I think as we are familiar with it and we've heard plenty of Easter sermons and the resurrection, the wonder of how remarkable it is that our Lord uh, was raised from the dead, I wonder if it escapes us a bit. These women, they left with a sense of ecstasy. I have to imagine if we were to leave a sermon like this one, or to, when, when this sermon is over, or our study of one of the other Gospels' uh, accounts of the resurrection, if we were to leave there in the same way that this, these women left that tomb, I have to wonder if our effectiveness in reaching others would be exponentially uh, impactful. I, th I think it would. Well, we continue on, verse 9. Let me take a sip of water for this one. It's going to take a minute. All right, verse 9. Now, depending on the version of the Bible you're reading, particularly if you have kind of like a study Bible or something like that, you may notice that prior to the verses, or maybe there's a little asterisk for you to look down at the bottom of your Bible, it, it's going to say something to the effect of some of the earliest manuscripts do not include. Let me make a few comments on that. As far as we know, none of the original letters, the epistles, or books of the Bible, Mark, John, Matthew, so on and so forth, none of the originals remain in existence today. As far as we know, they may find something in a cave someday, somewhere. What does exist today, and from which we get our printed Bibles that we hold in our hands or on our tablets or so on, what does exist are numerous copies 
of those originals. Now, those copies are called manuscripts. So again, if in your Bible it says some of the earliest manuscripts, that's what it's referring to. A manuscript is a handwritten copy of the original letter or book. And they were written as far back as the ending of the first century. And there, whereas the, we don't have any originals, there are plenty of manuscripts that are in existence today, some of which, again, go all the way back to the first century. And so the way it worked is, as the original became known, the original book of Mark or whatever it may be, as it became known, it began, and people said, you know what, this is a significant document here. This is different than just any old letter. People began to copy that and send those copies to other cities where churches were. Again, those copies are called manuscripts. And so the little note that some of us find in our Bibles about these final 11 or 12 verses not being found in some manuscripts, that's what it's referring to, that in some of those copies, verses 9 to 20, are not found. Now here's the situation, and the situation is this, that in some of the early man, earliest manuscripts, these verses aren't included. But at the same time, in some of the others, actually many of the others, these verses are included. And so as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, should we accept these final 10 or 11 verses, these final few accounts that we have here, should we accept them as scripture? And I believe the answer is yes, we should. And for two main reasons. Number one, None of these accounts that we have in these final verses contradicts Scripture in any way. And so it's not like we read these 12 verses and we learn something new that nowhere else in the Bible is taught. That would be a problem. So that's the first reason. And it's not like there's some new doctrine or some new idea that is introduced here that is never presented to us somewhere else. First reason. Second reason is because each one of the accounts that we do read about in verses 9 through 20 are presented to us in the other Gospels. And so Mark tells us that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. The other Gospels tell us that as well. John does. Mark tells us about the two disciples on the road outside of Jerusalem. Well, so does Luke in his particular gospel. Mark writes about Jesus' commissioning of his disciples that they go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Well, so does Matthew. Uh, so again, uh, all of the words that we have here, they're, they're not new information to us, teaching us something new that the other parts of the Bible don't teach us. And all of them are confirmed by accounts in the other gospels as well. So I'm completely comfortable accepting these final verses as God-breathed as useful for us to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us, just like the Apostle Paul said the Scripture is supposed to do. And so we're going to look at verses 9 to 20 with that goal in mind. God, what do you have for us? And so with that, let me read verse 9 and following. It says, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive, and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Now, Mark has already told us that Mary Magdalene was one of the three women that went to the tomb early that Sunday morning, again, to properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. From the other Gospels, we learn that after finding Jesus' tomb empty, she ran and she told Peter and John, and maybe the others as well, but she told Peter and John, now, it seems to us that she returned with them 
so that they would be able to see for themselves that the tomb was empty. They looked in, determined, yep, it is empty. They left, and she lingered a bit at the tomb. And it was while she lingered a bit at the tomb that Jesus had a private encounter with her, or she had a private encounter with him, Mary Magdalene. Now, for whatever reason, tradition has its ideas about who Mary Magdalene was and uh, what she was involved in. Tradition, for whatever reason, uh, has drawn the conclusion that she was the sinner, uh, as Luke describes her in Luke chapter 7. She was the immoral woman that came into the house where Jesus was celebrating a, a meal or having a meal with some of the Pharisees, and that she began to wash Jesus's feet with some ointment, and, and with her tears, she began to clean his feet, and so on. It's commonly understood that that's Mary Magdalene. The problem is the Bible never actually says that, and the Bible never links Mary Magdalene, this woman who we know here in Mark uh, 16 by name, with that woman in Luke chapter 7. Maybe it was her, maybe it wasn't. What we know about Mary Magdalene was that in her pre-Christ days, before she became a Christian and a follower of Christ, what we know about her definitively is that she was possessed by seven demons that Jesus would go on to cast out of her. That's all we really know about her. And so, you know, you see on movies and all these things about, you know, Mary Magdalene, the Bible doesn't really teach those things. Mary was a woman that loved the Lord deeply. The Lord had delivered her from sort of all that pain and all of that misery that those demons no doubt brought into her life and inflicted upon her. And she demonstrated herself to be eternally grateful to him for having done so. He had changed her life. And so Mark informs us, John's gospel gives us even greater detail that Jesus revealed himself to her. To her. We see here that she was the first one that he revealed himself to. And that he revealed himself to her in such a way that any doubts that she had about the resurrection, they were gone and she became fully convinced. Matthew tells us that she left her private encounter with Jesus and she went once more to the disciples and uh, actually I said Matthew, it's John, uh, and she announced, I have seen the Lord. Let me read that, John 20, it says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Notice, she's not saying the tomb is empty, all right, because that could be someone stole the body. She's saying, I have seen the Lord and he said these things to me. She is absolutely convinced uh, that not only is the tomb empty, but that he has been raised from the dead, and he spoke with her. Now, as we see in verse 11, the response of the disciples is they don't believe her. It says, but when they heard it, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe her. Mark goes on, he provides a second account of one of Jesus' post-resurrections. This starts in verse 12. Uh, it says, and after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe them. Now, the full account of that appearance, you can read in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. The two of them, as Mark describes them, are what we commonly know as those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, which we learn in Luke. So there's a lot more to this wonderful account interaction than what Mark gives us. Mark essentially just cuts to the chase, and he tells us that Jesus appeared to these men, and that after he did, they ran back into Jerusalem and began to tell the rest of the disciples. Notice, just like Mary, they too were not believed. 
One commentator I read, he referred to these unbelieving 11 as equal opportunity unbelievers. So they didn't just not believe the women. They didn't believe these men either. They just weren't willing to believe anyone. And honestly, look, if we put ourselves in the place of those disciples, I think a lot of us would have had difficulty believing as well until we got actual proof. It's not hard for me to imagine why it was so hard for these disciples to believe. And so Jesus is going to address that too. Look at verse 14. It says, Now afterward Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now there are two different accounts in the other Gospels that this may be referring to, that Mark is referring to. You can look at Luke chapter 24, it starts around verse 36, and you can look at John chapter 20, it starts around verse 19. Now, whatever this particular appearance was, what Mark informs us is that Jesus enters into the place where the eleven were and that he rebukes them. And he rebukes them in particular because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart. He rebukes them for their refusal to accept the reports of Jesus' resurrection that first came from Mary, then came from these two disciples. And you'll notice it says he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Sometimes that word hardness, hardness of heart, sometimes it's translated stubbornness of heart. And so it's not so much that the disciples didn't believe or couldn't believe, but it's real, in reality, it's that they would not believe. The initial attitude of the 11, the, the apostles minus Judas, the 11, the initial attitude of those apostles is summed up in the words of the apostle Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, unfortunately. But Thomas, the one who said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the, into the mark of those nails and place my hand into his side, he says, I will never believe. Well, that was pretty much the attitude of all of the apostles that remained there. And it seems as if the disciples seem happier to remain in their sadness than to believe the report of these other disciples. And Jesus says to them in so many words, he says to those 11 what he said a little later on to Thomas. He said, do not disbelieve, but believe. Put away that stubbornness and be ready to receive. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, before or between, I should say, verses 14 and verses 15, there's an interval about 40 days. If you just read Mark's gospel, you wouldn't know it. It seems like it was the very next thing that occurred. But you can read about the events of those 40 days, or at least some of the events of those 40 days, in the other Gospels. Um, and also, again, as I mentioned earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But Mark just skips ahead, and he goes from sort of Jesus appearing to those disciples, which was, you know, the day of his resurrection, all the way uh, to the end of his 40 days on the earth when Jesus was ascended into heaven. And so let's skip up verse 15. It says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick, and the sick will recover. 
Now, verse 15 is Mark's version of what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Now, the more common version of the Great Commission is found in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. But they're, they're essentially the same thing. Mark here in chapter 16, Matthew in chapter 28. Two years ago, the Barna Research Group, that's kind of like the, the Gallup poll of uh, the Christian community, the Barna Research Group, they did a survey of self-professed Christians, people that said, I'm a Christian, self-professed Christians. And in that survey, they found that 51% of self-professed Christians were not familiar with the term, the Great Commission. They also found in that study that of those that were familiar with the term, only 37% actually knew that it came from this verse or the Matthew passage and what it actually involved, that it involved going into all the world and preaching the gospel. All right, so 51% of self-professed Christians didn't even know the term. Of those that said they did know the term, only 37% actually knew where it came from and what it actually said. Now, I don't know if any of us that are watching here this morning, any of you that are watching here this morning, were part of that Barna survey. They called you up and began to ask you your opinions. But if they ever call again, after this morning, we're all going to know exactly what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission, it comes from Jesus' words in Matthew 28 and in Mark 16. And again, it's where he commanded his disciples to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel so that we might make disciples. The disciples were to carry the good news. That's what the word gospel literally translates to, uh, the good news. The disciples were to carry the good news of Jesus' accomplished redemption. And you'll notice, not only to Israel, not only to Jewish people, to whom the message of the kingdom had been primarily largely confined to during the ministry of Jesus, but instead they were to carry that message to the entire world. These few verses that we find in these two books are essentially the catalyst for world evangelization and missions. It may be of interest for you to note this, that the tense of the original of these words is not to say send missionaries. That's not really what is being communicated here. But the, the tense would more literally cause us to translate these passages as this, as you are going throughout the world, preach the gospel to every creature. In other words, the focus is not merely on where we are to go. That is, go to the other, uttermost parts of the earth and tell people. The focus is not merely on where we are to go, but what we are to do as we are going. And that is whether we are going across the street or all the way across the ocean. And so each one of us that names the name of Christ, we have been commanded. And it's important that you understand that the Great Commission is not a suggestion, but it is a command to all disciples of Jesus Christ. And so each one of us that names the name of Christ is commanded. We are called to bear the testimony that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. All of that in fulfillment of the scripture. And we are to do so whether it is while we are interacting with our neighbors or it's the people that we work with and we go into that community with those individuals or if God calls us to go to the other side of the world and to communicate the message. 
That's the Great Commission. And it's a commission, it's a command that has been given to each one of us that name the name of Christ. Somebody has said this. They said, interest in missions is not an elective, not an elective in God's university of grace. Rather, it is something in which every disciple is expected to major. And so let's ask the question. I've been around the church enough. I, I know myself well enough. And let's ask this question. Why don't we share the gospel more frequently as Christians? I think there's a variety of reasons. One, I think in some cases, we may actually not be aware that it's our responsibility to do so. In some cases, we might think that taking the gospel everywhere uh, we go is the job of a pastor, or it's the job of, a, of an evangelist, or the job of a missionary. Hopefully, by now, I've made it clear that the Great Commission is all of our commissions. Every one of us that names the name of Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, you are to go and tell others of those things that you have seen and those things that you have heard. That's one reason. In some cases, we don't share because perhaps we're intimidated for one reason or another. Maybe we, we wonder what others are going to think about me if we begin to share with them spiritual things. Well, if that describes you, and I think sometimes it does, well, then I just want to encourage you to consider the other things in your life that you have no reluctance talking about. And so why is it that you talk so freely about sports and your ideas and views as to which team is going to win this particular season? Why is it that you so freely are willing to talk about or post on social media or what have you about politics or the latest news or the latest information? Why is it we're more comfortable sharing about those things and putting an opinion out there about those things, but not the greatest of news, that our sins can be forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? And so sometimes we don't share the message because we're intimidated. But truth be told, I don't think intimidation is the biggest problem for most of us. I think the biggest problem for most of us is not intimidation, but, if you will, articulation. And what I mean by that is we don't know what to say. You know, so sometimes we think sharing the gospel is inviting someone to church. Well, that's not sharing the gospel. They may come to church and hear the gospel, but sometimes we don't know what to say, and so we don't say anything. And the reason why I say this is because I have been in settings with people that were initially shy, maybe intimidated to share their faith. Maybe instances where we go on the streets or we go to the boardwalk or we're on a mission trip somewhere and people ask, why are you here? And so the person sort of comes up alongside of me. They're not saying anything. They, they clearly seem to be a little bit intimidated by the circumstance but then they're sort of watching either what I'm doing or somebody else maybe that's a little more experienced is doing, and they watch them share their faith. They watch them share their testimony. They watch them tell of what God has done in their life and how their sins had been forgiven because they came to Christ in faith. And it's almost like a light goes off in their head where they, they begin to think and they begin to say, that's all I need to do? I can do that. And then they take off and they start telling lots of people about what God has done in their lives. And so that's not so much a problem in their case of intimidation, but it, rather it's a problem if they didn't know what to say or how to say it. And so I think it would be helpful for all of us to remind ourselves, what is it that we proclaim when we proclaim the gospel? Well, the gospel is comprised of three components, three aspects to the gospel message. The first one is this, is that we are all sinners and that the consequences of that sin is death 
and judgment. That's the first aspect of this. And sadly, many, many even within the professing Christian community, they want to leave that portion of the message out. Many in our day, they're uncomfortable naming sin that which God names to be sin. And uh, uh, speaking about the consequences for that sin. But see, that's the problem. Sin and judgment is humanity's problem. And if there was no sin and there was no judgment, then mankind would have no problem that would need to be addressed by God. There would be no need for good news if there was some, wasn't some bad news already. So that's the first component of things, that man is sin, mankind are sinners, and that that sin will demand judgment. Second component of the gospel is that despite the fact that we sinned against God and that his holiness requires that he judge that sin, despite all of that, God loves us. And he desires to be in relationship with us. That's the second component. And the third and final component, uh, component of the gospel is this, that God so loved us that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in the work of his son would have eternal life. That's the third and final component of the gospel. It's what we've been considering these last two or three weeks on Sunday mornings, that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the price of our sin, my sin and your sin. And by placing my trust in his work, that, that's the idea of believing. By believing in his work on the cross, I will be forgiven. That's the gospel message. And that's a message you can confidently proclaim to someone you meet on the boardwalk, someone you meet on a street corner, somebody you meet down as you're uh, handing out cold water on the streets of Trenton, your coworker that you sit beside and you're talking to at lunch, or someone you go to the other side of the world and speaking, speaking through a translator, you tell them the message. It's the same message for all of humanity. That's the gospel. And that's good news. Well, Mark continues in verse 16. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, we want to be careful with this verse because it's not to say that those that believe and are baptized will be saved, as if there's two things that need to happen for salvation to occur, faith and then the rite of baptism. And there are some that teach that that's what verse 16 is saying. Well, we know for a variety of reasons it can't mean that. Number one, the thief on the cross. Obviously, when the thief on the cross came to faith and he turned to the Lord and expressed his faith in the Lord, he could not get down and get baptized. And despite that, yet, Jesus says, truly, I, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He was saved, yet he was never baptized. In Acts chapter 10, we read of a group of Gentiles. It's a group of Gentiles in the area of Caesarea. They had become believers. But what we see in Acts chapter 10 is they were baptized after Peter pronounced that they were indeed believers. In John chapter 4, we learn that Jesus himself didn't baptize anybody. And that would be pretty odd if baptism were necessary for salvation. Similarly, Paul, he thanks God that he baptized only a few people. And he says he was thankful that he, did, uh, he didn't do more, lest people begin to think that that was the means of their salvation and follow him as opposed to follow the Lord. Again, that would be pretty odd. Paul would say in another place, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. And again, that would be almost heretical 
if faith and baptism were required for salvation. All, and in addition to all of that, there are about 150 New Testament verses that speak to the idea that salvation is by faith alone. And so thus Jesus cannot be saying that faith plus baptism leads to salvation. Also, notice in verse 16, the second half of the verse, notice the emphasis there on believing. And so he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I think it would be different if it says, does not believe and be baptized or something like that. So those who receive the message in faith, those that believe, they were to testify to the fact of their belief by publicly identifying themselves with Christ. And that would be done, and it continues today, to be done through baptism. And so baptism, it serves as an outward expression of what's going on inside of a person. Baptism doesn't save a person. Rather, what it does is it publicly declares that that person has already been saved. Again, baptism is a public demonstra- or declaration as the person, they, they're placed under that water and then they're raised back up again. It's a public declaration of both the work that Jesus has done in that he died, was buried, and was raised back to life, but it's also a declaration of what God is doing in that person's life as they have died to themselves and they have been raised to the newness of life. And baptism serves as a picture of that new life. It's not the means of securing that new life. And so, Baptism is not essential for salvation. But let me say this, even in saying that, I think it would be a big mistake for us to say that baptism is not essential in the life of a Christian. And so it's not essential for salvation, but it's very important in the life of a Christian. Jesus told believers to be baptized and to publicly declare to the world and to themselves that they are identifying themselves with Christ. And so if you're a believer and you've never been baptized, we're going to do a baptism next week. And I know some of you are at home, and you're watching at home, and you're reluctant to be in sort of a public setting with other people because of the virus and things like that. But I want to encourage you, if, if that describes you, and you have been thinking about getting baptized, and you want to get baptized, and you, you kind of want to come and meet with us, then we'll baptize you. If you prefer to put it off until it's a little safer to be in closer proximity with folks, then we'll do that as well. But Uh, If you're a believer that has never been baptized, it is a mark of obedience to do so, to publicly declare your faith. And so if you're thinking about being baptized, reach out to me, contact me, and we'll begin talking about what that might look like in your own life. Well, let's wrap up our verses here. Let me take a, a quick sip again. Starting in 17, it says, Now these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Will recover. A couple of things I want you to take notice here. Notice the signs accompany the belief. And notice also, Jesus doesn't say that those who believe are going to run from church to church following these various signs. Rather, again, what he says is that these signs will follow those that believe. And it was, and it is, as the disciples go out into the world, that various signs and wonders will accompany them. 
and will confirm the preaching of those disciples. And notice that the disciples were called to preach. God would, as he saw fit, he would do the confirming with these various signs and the like. Verse 19, it says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and they preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, just like he said in the, in the two previous verses. Luke also writes of this event here in verse 20 of uh, 19 of Jesus being ascended. He, he talks about it at the end of chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke, and then the opening eight verses of, of the first chapter of the book of Acts. So if you want a little more specifics about Jesus' ascension into heaven, you can read those two places. We know this, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, and after many, in some cases, lengthy appearances to his disciples, 40 days after that, Jesus was received up into heaven, and that when he got there, he sat down at the place of honor, which was the right hand of his father. He sat down because the work that he had come to do was complete. There was no additional work that he needed to do. He had redeemed the world, just like he said on the cross, it is finished. The price has been paid in full. And so he went, when he came to that heavenly temple of heaven, as the book of Hebrews describes heaven, he sat down at the right hand of his father. What did his disciples do? Well, the disciples tell us, or Mark tells us, that filled with the Spirit, they went out and they preached everywhere. And just like Jesus said, the Lord confirmed his message with accompanying signs. We talk, I talked this morning about Mark's brevity. Mark says in one verse, verse 20, what Luke tells us in 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And that is essentially that they went everywhere preaching the good news that everyone might be forgiven of their sins because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what was the result of their, their mission, their following the commission? What was the result of it? Well, we learn in the book of Acts, we have the testimony of some of those that observed what these disciples were doing. Acts chapter 17, verse 6 says, those who had turned the world upside down have come here to our city as well. And I, I'll tell you, how great would it be for those words to be spoken of each one of us? Those that had turned the world upside down have come to our city as well. That's my prayer. I hope it's your prayer as well as we go and tell everyone that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the confidence we can have in the message of the gospel. Lord, that we don't have to tailor our message to a, a certain type of people or um, a new generation or anything like that, but that the message of the cross, though it's foolishness to some, is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. And so whether we're talking to young people or older people, whether we're talking to religious people or the anti-religious, whether we're talking to people in the United States that are like us or that are different from us or people to the uttermost parts of the earth who seemingly we have nothing in common with, we know that we can bring the same message of the gospel, that they are a sinner, that God will judge sin, but he loves them and set his son to pay the price for them. 
and that if they would place their trust in the work of his son, they will be forgiven. And so, Lord, empower us to go forward with boldness, with the courage to share that message with anyone that might listen. Use our words to bring conviction and change into the hearts that we, of those we are talking to, talking to, that they might be saved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. And if you would like to reach out to us here at Calvary, you can do so via email, ccmercer.com. If you're watching on Facebook, uh, you could just simply drop it in the comment section below there. But again, our email, it's connecting at ccmercer.com. We'd love to hear from you, uh, interact with you, and, and help you along in your walk with Jesus Christ. God bless you, and thank you so much for being here.